Last year, the WannaCry ransomware attack shut down hospitals, public transportation systems, and governments, demanding payment to unlock key computer systems. A programmer named Marcus Hutchins was able to stop WannaCry by registering a DNS entry buried in the WannaCry code. Not long after he stopped the WannaCry attack, Marcus Hutchins was arrested at a security conference in Las Vegas. Marcus's arrest was due to actions that were unrelated to WannaCry. He is accused of writing a piece of malware called Kronos. Marcus volunteered his time to help stop WannaCry. This was a piece of ransomware that threatened to cause billions of dollars in damages. Whether or not he was a black hat in the past, perhaps Marcus should be absolved of his past actions. Reeves Weideman is a journalist with New York Magazine, and he joins the show to tell the story of WannaCry's gray hat, Marcus Hutchins. Reeves Weideman is a journalist with New York Magazine. Reeves, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. So you are a journalist. You're not a software engineer. Most of the guests on the podcast are software engineers, but mm-hmm. occasionally we like to do interviews of varying topics. And this subject that we're going to discuss today is related to software engineering. It's a story about a gray hat hacker associated with the WannaCry ransomware attack. Why don't you explain the circumstances of the story that we're about to dive into? Sure. Yeah. And I hope as someone who's not a software engineer that I don't say too many things that are embarrassingly stupid when it comes to describing the technical details of things, but I'll do my best. So the story we that we wrote about was about Marcus Hutchins. Marcus back in 2017 was, he had just started working as a cybersecurity researcher. He was 23 years old, living in England. At the time he was living and working from his parents' home in kind of the rural UK. And in May of 2017, a large ransomware attack, the WannaCry attack was hitting systems really around the world. Uh, it One of the biggest targets was the UK's uh, health system. It was taking a lot of uh, hospitals offline. It was also uh, attacking businesses throughout Europe and the rest of the world. And basically, Marcus just kind of jumped into action sort of on his own time. It wasn't necessarily part of his job like many people had done that day because this was such a huge attack. And long story short, he basically... He's someone who who often tracks these type of attacks, and he uh, took a look at the code, which was kind of being passed around, and uh, found that there appeared to him to be a way for him to track what the botnet or what the ransomware was doing by sinkholing the traffic. So he registered this domain name that he found in the code. And when he did that, sort of more or less by accident, figured out that he had actually stopped the attack from spreading. So he sort of became this momentary hero, sort of both in the cybersecurity world and then kind of more generally. Now, the BBC was at his house, reporters throughout the UK were at his house. And he really, you know, became kind of this hero. And then several months later, he came to the United States for a conference, the DEF CON conference in Las Vegas. And as he was preparing to leave, he was arrested by federal agents in the United States, who it was later revealed in an indictment were charging him with creating a separate piece of malware called Kronos that had been created several years before 
uh, was completely unrelated to WannaCry, but according to prosecutors, was something that Hutchins, when he was younger, had had done. So fast forward to us working on this article. And today, you know, Marcus is kind of awaiting trial and or sort of his proceedings are kind of ongoing. He has maintained his innocence. And so, you know, the question we were trying to do, and in addition to kind of trying to sort out was what was going on is, is kind of how society should react to people in the computer security world who, on the one hand, may be good guys. On the other hand, perhaps when they were younger, uh, learned some of their skills by kind of mucking around in things they shouldn't have done. So that uh, is a long-winded way of kind of explaining what the article is about. Right. And I'm glad you you gave such a detailed synopsis there because there's a lot of different things that I would love to explore with you. Obviously, the contemporary aspect of hacking in terms of ransomware. Ransomware is, I think, a somewhat new brand of malware. And we've done a show on ransomware in the past, so people can listen back to that if they want a detailed explanation. But ransomware is essentially malware that locks your computer up and demands that you pay money to a certain address, oftentimes paid in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. And once you pay, you get to unlock your computer. And this attack vector is it's pretty strong. And there's a lot of different brands of ransomware that are attacking people throughout the world. WannaCry was particularly painful because it was so widespread and it hit facilities like hospitals. The other aspects that I want to explore aside from ransomware are, of course, Marcus Hutchins himself. He's quite an interesting character. And, you know, I'd like to unpack the character of Marcus Hutchins. And I'd also like to talk about journalism, because I think the worlds of journalism and software, there's increasing overlap there, and there is a disconnect between those those two areas. And I encounter this disconnect all the time, because I'm kind of a software journalist myself. Maybe we can start with the topic of journalism. Why did you write this story? What drew you into the story of Marcus Hutchins and WannaCry? Yeah, I think we were interested kind of in finding out who Marcus was, because I think he is clearly one in a sort of cohort of people that are becoming, you know, more and more influential in society, which is is uh, people who work in cybersecurity. And, and, you know, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, the work Marcus does didn't exist. And, and yet now, as is becoming obvious in, in many, many ways, people like him are, are, are more and more important and more and more powerful, frankly, in terms of what they can do. And in terms of protecting the internet or potentially using their skills for harm. I think a lot of, you know, lay people are sort of scared because they don't know, you know, this is such sort of unfamiliar territory and most people would prefer to just kind of imagine that technology just kind of works. It just always works and we're always going to be safe and you don't have to worry about the sort of what's undergirding it. Um, I think people are becoming more and more aware that, you know, there are human beings who who make these things work. And so I think for us, it was just kind of a chance to to find out what someone from that world is like, who is Marcus, what kind of person is attracted to this work, and then, you know, how do they react to very young ages, in a lot of cases, kind of having a lot of influence. I have done a couple interviews with Adrian Lamo, who unfortunately passed away recently, and when he was pretty young, I think a, a late teenager, he started 
finding backdoors into websites like banks and I think the New York Times, all of these poorly designed websites in the late 90s. And he would find these vulnerabilities and then he would email the companies that, hey, you have this vulnerability. And I think one of the companies ended up pursuing legal action against him because he just notified them of their their vulnerability. And, and it was the first in a number of, of tragic events in his life where he, from my point of view, it was very clear he was he was guided by pure morals, and he had the best intentions at heart. And maybe early on in his career, he didn't really have the diplomacy to really approach these issues correctly. And I think similarly with Marcus Hutchins, you see somebody who started off in his career making some malware that maybe he, he later regretted, or maybe not, who knows, we can get into that. But you see this pattern with people who often start off just they're either curious or they see the leverage that they can have with cybersecurity. If they if there are some kid with a computer and they learn they can make a lot of money by hacking into certain systems. And then later on, they realize, oh, actually, with great power comes great responsibility. You probably shouldn't do that. They change their tune, but their history follows them and and they are judged on their past actions. It seems like a theme among hackers. I mean, in your reporting on this story, did you find more cybersecurity researchers that had that kind of history where they started off with as kind of a black hat and then had a change of tune? Yeah, you know, I think it's sort of a trope in cybersecurity that everyone has a past. There is some truth to that and I think there's some exaggeration. I think the Again, it's kind of one of those things where as you and kind of choosing your words there, like, you know, hacker has, has kind of a negative connotation, whereas in this world, it, it very much doesn't. And I think that at the there's two things. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of hackers who when they're teens kind of, you know, figuring out how to program for the first time and figuring out what they can do. I don't think many of them would identify as black hats, but I think at the same time, they're going to kind of test the limits of their skills. And it's also happening at a point just sort of developmentally when, you know, people that age don't have kind of a perfect, you know, moral compass in a lot of ways. And in some cases, you know, teenagers in years gone by might have egged a house, a teenager now might decide to deface a website. And they might not see it as like, I'm a bad guy and I'm doing bad. They're just kind of doing harmless pranks. Now, there are some people, and there's at least allegations that Marcus was someone who was maybe doing even more than that. And then, you know, then we get into kind of an even more difficult area. But it's certainly the case that that one thing we have to deal with is that some of the best people in this field are young and in their not distant past, they might have done things that, yeah, they shouldn't have. And then it sort of falls on on companies who employ these people or, or governments who, who might employ them or work with them or consider prosecutions against them to kind of determine what is in the broader interest of securing the internet. So Marcus Hutchins was able to stop WannaCry what was the background of Marcus Hutchins prior to WannaCry? Give some more details on that. Sure. Marcus had, he had gone to school for a while. He had had taken sort of two, kind of a two-year sort of college course, set of courses in the UK, and then kind of, you know, was sort of struggling to figure out what he wanted to do. He kind of, you know, cybersecurity for one thing is not the easiest, sort of easiest industry to get into in part because it's changing so fast in part because people don't know exactly what the jobs are. So I think for 
a good while, he, in kind of his very early 20s, he was kind of trying to figure out in what way his skills could be useful. And at one point, he, he decided to start a blog called malwaretech.com, which was sort of his handle prior to him stopping WannaCry. No one really knew who his name was, even, even people he was kind of close to online. And he just kind of started blogging about the work he was doing, mostly tracking botnets. And at a certain point, employer in the U.S. at a cybersecurity firm called Cryptos Logic read a post that Marcus had written about a particular botnet, was impressed with his work, reached out to him and gave him sort of a trial position at his company and eventually a full-time one. And so, you know, at the point that Marcus uh, stopped WannaCry, he'd been working at this company, I think, for a year, year and a half at that point as a full-time cybersecurity researcher at a very good salary. And he was kind of someone who by that point had become reasonably well-respected. He wasn't, he wasn't famous by any stretch, but people who, who did this kind of work knew who he was and, and by and large, I think, respected the work he was doing. When WannaCry occurred, governments and companies were affected by it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could just give another brief breakdown of the events that led up to WannaCry and it spread throughout the world and how Marcus responded to the events of WannaCry. Yeah, sure. So basically this one day in May, people were arriving at their places of work and finding that they were locked out of their computers by, you know, some piece of ransomware. Uh, People had varying levels of knowledge about what was happening, but that was... Uh, telling them that if they wanted to access their computers and the files on their computers, they needed to pay a ransom. And this happened to uh, British hospitals, a telecom company in Spain, the Romanian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, police departments in India, kind of organizations all across the world were getting hit. And so cybersecurity is this field where a lot of the people who work in it, they kind of do it for fun. They obviously do their jobs to get paid, but it's it's also in a lot of cases their hobby and something they like doing. And so Marcus and a number of other people kind of you know saw this was happening and it, it wasn't necessarily Marcus's job to try to do something like this. But he uh, and others sort of basically got a sample of the WannaCry code and began looking at it. And what Marcus noticed was that there was, in the code, there was this random domain name. It was, you know, 25 or so numbers and letters seemingly in, in a random order .com that was in the code. And he noticed that it was unregistered. And in many cases with pieces of malware, they'll have these unregistered domain names basically as a way to, so that the, and again, this is where I'm kind of pushing up against my knowledge, but the, often these pieces of malware will be designed so that they will be communicating to this unregistered domain name. And if that domain name is, ends up being registered, the, they will, the malware will, will sort of know that it's been kind of trapped in, in a sinkhole. Marcus uses that has in, in many cases, he told me he'd done this, you know, probably hundreds of times, registered that domain name, it basically as a way to then track the malware, because it communicates back to this domain name, he thought that if he had registered it, he would be able to see where it was kind of where it was going and just kind of get a picture of what was happening. What ended up happening is that when 
register the domain name, he basically activated what was then called a kill switch that just sort of stopped it from spreading. And by that point, there had been considerable damage. Dozens of hospitals in the UK had been closed. Significant amount of money had been lost just in terms of lost business around the world. But once Marcus hit that kill switch, by and large, the malware stopped propagating. And so it didn't spread further. Shortly after this attack was halted and Marcus became this international hero, essentially. Yeah. And he later found himself at a conference, as you mentioned, in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and he was arrested at that conference. And he was arrested because he purportedly had created this software in the past called Kronos. Explain what did he do in the past? What was this software Kronos? Why was it so malicious? Well, I should emphasize first off that he's alleged to have done this. He, of course, alleged claims right. that he is innocent. But what Kronos was was it? It's is what's known as a banking trojan. And basically, if Kronos was installed on your computer and you went to bankofamerica.com or whatever banking website you you might use and put in your username and password, uh, Kronos would surreptitiously take that information and would have it. And so Kronos was sort of, was kind of a piece of malware that was, you know, people had spotted back in 2014 and was when it kind of first emerged. Uh, It was being sold on Alpha Bay, which was kind of a dark web marketplace where people will often kind of buy, cyber criminals will buy um, pieces of malware to then use. And it never really became a, a huge problem. It's obviously, he, it, it was intended to do bad things. It certainly seems to have done that in some cases, but it was never sort of the biggest threat. In fact, some people I talked to in cybersecurity said when this kind of news broke about Marcus being involved, they had to go look up what Kronos was because they couldn't even remember it. Why do you think this happened? Do, did the FBI... Like, how did they connect Marcus Hutchins to Kronos? Did he just rise to prominence and then they're like, let's just start to investigate further who this guy is. And then through their, I don't know, maybe their Palantir knowledge graph, they found out that he was the creator of Kronos. You know, how did the FBI connect him to Kronos? And and was there some sort of mapping between Marcus Hutchins's rise to prominence and this past alleged miscreants? It's hard to say exactly why they decided to bring the prosecution. Of course, they are not obligated and haven't thus far said why. Um, Some people believe it's because Marcus became sort of a prominent target. But in terms of the evidence they have revealed, there, there are, at least the FBI says that there are chat logs in which Marcus discusses working on Kronos and sort of talks about selling it on these marketplaces. There was a confidential informant who the FBI was working with who had had purchased the malware. There is also, I, I should say, a, a co-conspirator who has who yet to be named by uh, the prosecutors who uh, that person is the person who allegedly sold uh, the malware allegedly after Marcus created it. So there does appear to be forensic evidence. A lot of people did tell me that, you know, the FBI doesn't bring cases lightly. At the same time, there have been, you know, these are difficult, difficult crimes to prove because of just kind of the nature of data being um, quickly produced and and quickly deleted, just kind of the nature of, of how these things work. So there's still, I think, a lot of questions to be answered about 
what evidence there is and and why the prosecution was brought in the first place. And Marcus is denying he created it? He is, yes. So after Marcus was arrested, the public perception of him changed. Some people suspected him of potentially even creating WannaCry in the first place. Mm-hmm. Do, do Do people still suspect him of that or or how widespread is that allegation i think it's a that's a pretty fringe view of things i mean the uh, american government for one thing has said it's among others has have said that it was north korea it seems to i'd say that's a that's a very fringe opinion at, at this point yeah yeah, about that North Korea, did did you look into that any any further about how the United States has figured out that it was North Korea? I did not. That wasn't really uh, sort of something that we sure needed to spend our time on, but you know, plenty of other people have have reported that and governments around the world have have done it. So unless there's a, a widespread cover up, it seems, you know, pretty likely at this point that that was the case in in terms of who was behind that. Yeah. So there were some other criticisms of past actions that Marcus had taken when he was coming up as a teenage programmer. What else had Marcus done in his early years as a programmer that he was he was getting criticized for? Well, yeah, basically what happened is a month or so after he was arrested, Brian Krebs, who's, who's a journalist who covers cybersecurity pretty much full time. He published an investigation in which he had, you know, more or less convincingly connected Marcus to a variety of online usernames from the past, going back to when he was 14, 15 years old. And, you know, some of the things that were he was accused of were, were pretty kind of low level cybercrime. It wasn't exactly stuff you want to be doing, but it's stuff that I think a, a lot of, of of teens his age do to one degree or another. It just sort of depends on on kind of how far you push it. But but some of the usernames, at least that Krebs had had found and and that he he believed he could tie to Marcus, you know, had designed programs that could steal passwords. Or there was one YouTube video kind of explaining how to use a particular piece of malware. Uh, but even Brian Krebs, who who's sort of when you're talking earlier about journalism and and cybersecurity he's he's about as as good as it gets in that particular field you know he acknowledged a that he couldn't connect marcus to chronos in any way and that you know the crimes were were relatively small time in the scheme of things and so you know what what it did i think was serve to kind of show a little bit of of a potential kind of pattern of behavior and it resulted in kind of two reactions some people were very quick to condemn marcus and i think other people were very quick to say this history is not that different than mine and that yeah a lot of people i think a lot of people saw themselves kind of in marcus well god bless brian krebs he's one of my favorite journalists Mm -hmm. did you get to talk to brian krebs for this story i did not know He's elusive. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a while. If anybody out there is listening and they know Brian Krebs, maybe you can send him my way. Did you learn anything about how the FBI interacts with people who have committed cyber crime? Because so I have this image, it's kind of romanticized, but I think you know it comes from the stories of the 90s and and hearing about Kevin Mitnick uh-huh. and some of these other famous hackers but this image of you know the FBI arrests somebody and then maybe they spend a little time in jail and then they get kind of turned and then they become 
an advocate for cybersecurity or they join a consultancy or they start their own consultancy and you know there's this turning process that the FBI instigates did you get any any insights into how the FBI tends to interact with these kind of black hat or gray hat programmers well i think a number of people who've who've kind of either either worked for law enforcement or otherwise sort of suggested to me you know yeah they the fbi is not looking in general to crack down on on small time cyber criminals they're looking to catch big fish so i you know there have been cases in the past where yeah they've they've caught someone doing something kind of smaller time and and used them but you know that's that's the case in in any kind of crime you know i do think there's i do think there's a genuine effort on the part of law enforcement to create better relationships with the hacking community certainly the department of justice has has put in a lot of initiatives to do that in a number for a number of reasons. One, the government needs cybersecurity people as much as anyone else, and they need you know the private se- sector cybersecurity world is is just as important in terms of protecting you know various government systems and private systems. So I think there's a genuine effort on the part of the DOJ and and other government agencies to build better relationships. I think the potential issue is that something like Marcus's case, where he was very clearly considered a hero for to a lot of people in this world, to then see him get arrested for something makes a lot of other people kind of wary and just sort of inherently distrustful. And this is in a community that is is probably by nature more distrustful than most of, of authority and, and the government. So we don't know to what extent the prosecutors sort of considered the broader implications of this, but it's at least something that seems worth keeping in mind. So what is the state of Marcus Hutchinson's life right now in his case? He's still uh, stuck living in the United States. He can't leave. He's living in Los Angeles and his lawyers and the government's lawyers are basically um, locked in a battle of competing motions on a, on a variety of things. Uh, the trial... I think there's really no date in place. A lot of these cases do end up in, in settlements. So that seems at least possible. But at this point, he's he's just kind of letting the legal proceedings go because there isn't too much else for him to do. And, and I think no one fully knows exactly what's going to happen, but that will play out in the coming weeks and more likely months ahead. So... When I was looking through this story, I was also looking through the other stories you've written recently, and it's quite a mix of different topics that you explore. So a lot of the technology journalists that I talk to on the show, when we do shows with journalists, when we're not doing shows with software engineers, their focus, their entire focus is technology, The like what stories can be covered in technology. Mm-hmm. Your focus is not exclusively technology. Is there some kind of theme in the in the stories that you try to explore? That's a good question. I, you know, I think the thing that probably connects it and, and connects Marcus to some of the other stories is, is that, you know, I'm interested in writing about people who are in interesting positions. And Marcus has certainly found himself in that case, just based on on everything that he has done and, and what has happened to him. And, and I think he he was just sort of an, an interesting person to kind of get to know as as something of a stand-in for kind of, I think, this broader demographic of people that, 
you know, as I kind of mentioned earlier, are just becoming more and more important. And so, frankly, I think for our purposes, it's not necessarily getting into the technical nitty gritty, but we just wanted to find out, you know, more about Marcus as a person and as a way of kind of, you know, finding out more about this group of people. Another long form piece that you wrote recently was about Mm -hmm. Uber. Describe what was the nature of the story you were writing about Uber? I was doing a piece more or less about kind of the difficulties that company was going through. This was roughly a year ago. At the time, they were dealing with just a seemingly endless string of bad press from their founder, you know, getting in trouble saying things he, he shouldn't have said to issues with uh, sexual harassment and, uh, and other kind of workplace issues to just kind of business problems. And I think people kind of realizing that the company was in trouble, uh, at least potentially, it wasn't just this kind of obvious kind of rocket ship of, of a company. And I think maybe for your listeners' interests, you know, I was spending a lot of time talking to engineers at the time at the company who had, who had worked there or, or either had been there or were still there and just trying to get a sense of kind of what it was like to work at this company that was, you know, constantly coming under fire and that you sort of consistently had to explain to your friends sort of, even though the work you were doing was, was really interesting, you know, you were kind of having to explain these why you were working for this company that was seemingly kind of found itself having bad press all the time. So yeah, it was just kind of an overview of, of that, uh, of, of kind of where Uber stood at that point. Yeah. What's your sense for how the ride sharing battle will play out? Do you think that Uber can escape the, the subsidy based business that they're in right now? My sense of it was, I think that certainly the service that Uber and Lyft and many others provide is one that many, many people find very useful. Uh, it's a service that's going to exist. It's less clear to me that that Uber or any of those other companies is going to completely transform uh, all modes of transportation and be worth uh, tens of billions of dollars. But, you know, I think at some point they're not going to be able to completely subsidize these rides. I think the rides will, will probably end up getting more expensive. And, and I think, you know, there may not be a bad result for Uber being a national taxi company. That's not a, a world changing business, but it's, it's a really good business. And I, I could imagine them kind of settling into that. But I think a lot of the problems that we talked about in that story a year ago are ones they still face and are still kind of dealing with. Another recent piece that you wrote recently was about Exxon and the Rockefellers. And I, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about the the difference between the history of big oil and that of big technology that we're starting to see rise to mm -hmm. prominence today? Do you see any parallels between those two gigantic industries? First thought that comes to mind, and I might direct your listeners to the latest issue of New York Magazine, is we just did a piece about people from a variety of tech companies sort of coming to terms with what they have wrought sort of on society. And that, you know, a lot of these big companies have had effects that you know, were unintended. And some I think are have been negative. And, and I think, you know, for certainly, you know, I'm not sure that big oil ever had kind of the sort of savior complex that a lot of people in, in the tech world, uh, I think have, but certainly early on in the, in the oil boom. And one thing that, that Exxon and other energy companies will say is, you know, we're making people's livelihoods better by providing cheap energy and, that whatever consequences there are to that are worth it. 
and I think in in the same way that people in the tech world are are coming to terms with that with that a little bit and and kind of having something of a reckoning, uh, I would say that's probably the case for at least the more introspective people in who who work in sort of the energy world. Tell me a little bit more about that piece, the the Exxon and the Rockefellers. What were you covering there? The Rockefeller family, which uh, has all of its money from Standard Oil, which eventually became Exxon, uh, several a, a number of members from that family have tried to push Exxon to sort of come to grips with climate change and, and the company's effect on that. And so the piece was sort of covering sort of the kind of battle between those two sides. Exxon has pushed back against the Rockefellers. The Rockefellers have gotten a certain amount of attention because of their family history to this problem. And, and they're currently kind of locked in a, in a bit of a legal battle that they've been roped into with several states' attorneys general, um, including in, in New York and Massachusetts, who are considering a probe of Exxon and sort of what the company knew about climate change uh, at various points uh, in its history versus what it said publicly. And the case is, you know, in, in some ways has similarities to the tobacco cases uh, where the tobacco companies kind of knew the consequences of, of smoking and kind of purposefully obfuscated that. And uh, in Exxon's case, there, there at least is some evidence that uh, the company's executives were well aware of climate change and their role in it and the potential negative consequences, but that publicly were much more likely to decide not to talk about that at the very least. So, so as we wrap up, I do want to talk a little bit about journalism and your your perspective on it, your trajectory in journalism. So on the show we've we've had people from from larger journalistic institutions, Bloomberg, New York Times, New York Magazine, of course, such as yourself. And then we've also had people who are individual journalists who are building their own brand, striking out on their own, or being medium authors, or bloggers, or podcasters. When you look at this spectrum of journalistic opportunities, how are you charting your course? Are you, are you focused on just producing extremely good content and finding a publisher where you can house yourself? Or do you see a, a brand to build for yourself? What's your trajectory? Well, I, I work full-time at New York Magazine and more or less do feature stories for the magazine and very happy doing it. I think freelancing is a tough game. I think Brian Krebs is, is a great example of someone who's really managed to do that. I hope well. I, I don't know anything about his finances, but he does seem to have built a career kind of on his own, which I think is really admirable. You know, I think it's tough to get into that. I think freelance writing is kind of a side thing if you if you like it or to, you know, in, in Marcus's case, he, he just started a blog and that helped him get a career doing something else. You know, I think that's kind of a really, really admirable thing and really, really good way to go about it. But for me, I'm working at New York Magazine and, and much more interested in just doing good work for the magazine than promoting my own brand at this point. So what story are you working on now? Another story about a company that's kind of going through some some difficulties. So that's what I'm working on right now. Okay. Well, Reeves Weideman, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Do you have any predictions for, for what else is going to come out in this WannaCry case? You know, I don't. I think the only thing I'll predict is that kind of whatever result I think will have a big impact on the cybersecurity world. If, if Marcus is found guilty, I think that would obviously be a big deal. If he's found innocent or, or is kind of let go, I think people have a lot of questions about the prosecution. So either way, I think it's a case to, to watch. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show once again. No worries. Thank you. Wow. 